KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for uh, being here for Political Rewind today. Very happy to have you with us as we move forward with news in state and local politics as well as watch what's going on in Washington in these consequential days up there. Uh, Kevin Riley is uh, with us. He's the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us on the Tuesdays when he can fit it into what is an increasingly very busy schedule. We're glad to have you here today, Kevin. I'm, I'm glad to be here and just very happy the Speaker of the House didn't choose to visit today and I wouldn't be able to be yeah, here. Yeah, you had a pretty good, we talked about it, of course, a lot on yesterday's show, but it was really a, a feather in the AJC's cap that she wanted to come meet with your editorial board uh, last Friday and uh, we were very grateful that you invited one of our people, Robert Jimison, to sit in on that as well. So good for you. It was an interesting session. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right next to you, Senator Jen Jordan is uh, back with us. Uh, she's a Democrat. And um, we're going to get into a little bit later in the show, Jen. You've been really out front on the whole issue of sterigenics, the um, emissions that uh, many people worry are coming out of that sterilization, medical sterilization plant. And I, I'm looking forward to getting... Uh, to that at some point, but I'm glad to hear you talk about anything today. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Across from you, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you will see Brian Robinson. Brian, of course, uh, we haven't seen you for a while, and I'm sorry about that. I like having you on this show. Um, former communications director for Governor Nathan Deal during the first term, mm -hmm. now off doing consulting on government affairs, uh, issues that matter to you. How would you describe? How do you describe your company right now? It's public affairs communications. Okay. So when companies get in trouble with the state because they've got polluted air, you know, they should call me and I can I can help them get through it. <laughs> there a message to Sterogenics uh, <laughs> if they're listening out there. Although they've already hired another panelist on the show, yeah, yeah, Keith yeah. Garrett. All uh, <laughs> right. Um, you know, we've uh, been tinkering with when to talk about impeachment, when not to talk about impeachment early in the show. So here, but but we do have a local angle that we want to get to. But but it, before we do. Uh, let me just give you a few headlines. This is really a pretty big morning in terms of the impeachment front. Um, Democrats in the House have now issued a subpoena for EU Ambassador Gordon Sundland to give testimony about what he knows about the pressure the Trump administration applied, hoping the Ukrainian government would have dirt they could give uh, to Trump on uh, Joe and Hunter Biden. Sondland was due to uh, appear on the Hill this morning and at the last minute, th through a voicemail that came into the Intelligence Committee at like midnight last night, the administration said we are not going to allow him to testify, despite the fact that Sunderland's lawyer said that he was ready and willing. He'd come in from Belgium to be able to testify. So we're going to watch how all that plays out. Congressman Schiff called it an act of obstruction, which has some importance because what they've already said, the Democrats, is that any attempt to block testimony could be considered an article of impeachment, of obstruction. Republicans, on the other hand, said that uh, this was a kangaroo court that Schiff was overseeing, and they were not going to allow their people to uh, appear. And one other quick note, a Washington Post poll released today, and I can't wait to hear the panel on this. This is pretty consequential. It shows that support for the impeachment inquiry has now risen to 58%. This is for the inquiry. 38% oppose it. And that's pretty clearly Trump's core, 38%. 49%, um, according to the Post poll, now support not only impeachment, but Trump's removal from office. And the Post poll has 28% of the Republicans that surveyed, they surveyed, favoring the investigation. 18% saying they support the president's removal from office. So these numbers are moving uh, uh, quite a bit. I wanna, I'm going to give you all a chance to talk about that. Before we do, though, Jimmy Carter, President Carter is up in Nashville. 
at a Habitat for Humanity build. We already, I think, know the story that he took a fall at his house in Plains uh, over the weekend, 14 stitches over his left eye, I think, and uh, yet he got uh, on the bus, the car, the plane, however he got up there and went up to build more houses. Um, Andrea Mitchell talked to him at noon today, and uh, he had a couple of interesting things to say about the impeachment. Let's listen first to his answer to Andrea Mitchell when she asked him whether he thinks this impeachment inquiry is a good idea. I'm very glad that the Speaker of the House uh, has uh, ordained that the investigation go forward and then decide, I guess, with the whole House voting on it, whether or not to proceed with the actual uh, impeachment of the president. But uh, if the facts reveal uh, increasing uh, number of things that he has actually done, uh, then, of course, impeachment is possible and removal from office is possible. And do you think that the president, the White House and the State Department are right to be blocking people from testifying, preventing the facts from coming out? No. I think that's a departure from custom and a departure from what American people expect. And I think that's one of the main things that Americans are now considering is the fact that the White House is trying to stonewall and not provide adequate information always to, to base a, a good case to be made either for or against President Trump. Um, let me, Brian, uh, since you're the Republican on the panel today, um, your reaction to President Carter uh, saying that the inquiry is a good idea, but but going on to say that he thinks that the White House is making a terrible mistake not to allow people to testify. That it's customary for the White House to respond to a subpoena. And then these polling numbers, which suggest, and this is one poll, we will see whether other polls, there's most of the polls out there now show an increase in the percentages of people who support the inquiry, at least. But this one's the first time we've seen significant Republican support. And we'll see if this is an outlier. Yeah, there's a big difference, and the poll even shows this, between supporting an inquiry, trying to get the facts of what happened, and then supporting actual impeachment and then, of course, removal. I think we are all in agreement that a lot of this is just theoretical. He's not going to be removed from office, barring major differences in what the facts are at hand. So I'm not surprised by President Carter's comments. What he's saying is very much in line with what Democrats throughout the country think. That, Of course, they think the president is stonewalling. Republicans believe that the president is standing up against a force that is obsessed with removing him from office. And I, he's not going to pay a political price for that with his core support. You said that 38% was his, his base. His base is probably 40 to 42, somewhere in there. So he's not going to pay a political price because they believe that every one of these attacks on him is created to reverse the 2016 election. That is how his base supporters see it. Jen, uh, the president, but President Carter did say he's not convinced yet that there is evidence for a for articles of impeachment. He says, and certainly, and he did say at another point in the interview, he has no expectation, even if the House passes out articles of impeachment, he assumes, as Brian just suggested, the Senate would never convict him. Um, but but so I think he was fairly moderate in the way he described it. Yes, let's have the investigation go forward. Yeah. Yeah, I think most people agree with that. Um, I think the problem right now is this whole obstruction of the process. Um, you know, at the end of the day, that's dangerous because obstruction in and of itself can serve as a basis um, for articles of impeachment. And so you have to be a little bit careful um, you know, even coming from a political place. But look, if there's nothing here, if if this is a nothing burger, the way that the Republicans have kind of been pushing it, then what what's the big deal? Right. Have the hearings, you know, have Doug Collins cross examine the witnesses appropriately, you know, kind of bring it all out and show that there's there's no there there. I think the problem is, is that there probably is something there. And that's why we see obstruction. Kevin. Well, you know, one thing about the poll is that it was taken from October one to October six. Right. So if you are on the side of believing Donald Trump has done things wrong and this and, and this should, should go forward and there should be an impeachment inquiry, that is the perfect 
perfect time period within which to ask people about it, because for people on the Democratic side, that was their bright, shining moment when all these terrible things were just compounding themselves. So to me, what's important is as we go forward, can are the Democrats going to be seen as having a very measured, wise, fair investigation, or are they going to come across as hyper-partisan, just looking for any reason that they can Good, to get after yeah, the president? Right. Because well, average Americans, that's how they're going to see it. Absolutely. And I, I think, to Jen's point, I think that there is a positive pathway for the White House if they choose to testify and choose to cooperate because these hearings that Democrats have thought were going to bring down the president have blown up in their face time and time again. The Mueller report hearing did not go the way that they wanted it to. They had Corey Lewandowski in there a couple of weeks ago. Pelosi, by all reports, was uh, Kevin's friend, Nancy Pelosi. We're very upset with how it went. Jen, it does strike me, though. That there's really a big difference between the way um, uh, uh, the Judiciary Committee handled its hearings, and especially with Corey Lewandowski, where they were um, laughed out of town in many ways for s- such an incompetent job of dealing with him. It's not surprising now that Adam Schiff, a former prosecutor and somebody who knows how to make his points clearly and strongly, is now essentially taking the lead with uh, his uh, intelligence committee. And I think there's a big difference between those two committees in terms of what Brian is saying. Absolutely. I mean, I think what we've seen with Chairman Schiff and also why there's been such a pushback on him is that he has been fairly methodical. Um, He's been fairly measured in terms of how he's approached it. And I think that that comes across to the public um, as opposed to what we've seen um, with respect to the Judiciary Committee a lot of the times. I mean, obviously, the two chairmen have very, very different styles. And I think that with respect to Schiff, the fact that he was a prosecutor and how he knows how to narrow the issue and stay on a witness. I think it's been incredibly important here. None of this is to say that Nadler's Judiciary Committee did not, in fact, uh, it talked to get important information at times out of witnesses. It's just that some of the witnesses were able to run roughshod over that committee. They didn't plan out and and, uh, uh, organize their questioning in a way that would allow them to really have control of a couple of those hearings. It's about controlling the witness, yeah. right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, whenever you're planning out a cross-examination, you almost have to go question by question by question in order to make sure you box somebody yeah. in yeah. and kind of get them where you need them to be. And that takes a lot of discipline, and it takes a lot of experience. Says lawyer Jordan, by the way. Hey, Kevin, can I play you one more soundbite of Jimmy Carter and then get your reaction to it? Yeah, absolutely. You might be surprised by my reaction because uh, I think <laughs> what, I know what's coming. This was close to the end of Andrea Mitchell's interview with Carter. And uh, let's just listen to what she asked him and how he answered. Finally, any advice for President Trump going through this? Uh, My advice to him would be to tell the truth, I think, for a change, and also to cut back on his uh, Twitter feeds and and, uh, give the House of Representatives and also the Senate, and I'd say the general public, uh, the evidence that, that we need to, to form a case either for or against him. Kevin? Well, um, I don't know if you're a Democrat if you want to follow that advice, because I think having President Trump's Twitter feed go is, is helping provide some of the evidence they may be, may be looking for. But one interesting thing about President Carter when it comes to that line about telling the truth, I once got to talk to him and uh, was asking him a few questions about his presidency and how he handled things. And one of the things he said was it was a rule in his White House that they would never lie. And now we could argue about whether they did and, you know, all that stuff. And he believes that that made it much harder. It it is much harder now to not lie in politics. So, uh, you know, the president appears to be doing a fair amount of truth telling, at least about this one phone call. And it appears to help the Democrats, Brian, wouldn't you say? I, I think he's been overwhelmingly frank, and this is part of why I think they maybe could do that, have that sort of message discipline that he showed in that scrum on the White House lawn last week where he goes, this isn't about politics. This is about fighting corruption. And he kept driving that message. And I just happened to be flipping through and saw it that afternoon and thought, well, the way he handles these things are not how you would teach somebody in media training how to do an interview. At the end of it, you know exactly what his message is, and it's clear as a bell. 
Yeah, well, once he finally got to a message, he had, we, he tried two or three others before he finally arrived at, oh, this was all about corruption. Fighting corruption. Yeah, but, Jen, you know, I'm surprised. No one has pointed something out here. The, the White House line is now, this is about corruption. We want to clean up corruption in Ukraine before we give them our 500 million bucks, whatever it was. What, what's interesting about that is President Trump has made it clear that there is no country he is more concerned about helping than Israel. The prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been under investigation for several years. Uh, if he ends up not being able to form a government, um, it is fairly clear that he could be indicted uh, for corruption charges himself. And there are other examples. I think that's the most uh, uh, basic and essential one of countries where corruption hasn't been a particular problem for for this White House or for that matter, for Democratic presidents down the road as well. Look, consistency is is not (laughs) what Trump does. I mean, basically what he what he does is he kind of uses things when he thinks they're necessary. I mean, think about Saudi Arabia. It's not just Israel. I mean, when we're talking about the various countries that have been embroiled in controversies and in corruption and, and kind of how we pick and choose um, where we want to point the finger and where we don't, I mean, clearly this is just used as part of his messaging and part of saying corruption, corruption, corruption. The problem is is that his own government indicated, and, and we know that there are memos to the extent that there had been clear um, efforts by the Ukraine to actually clean up corruption, and that's why the money needed to be released. So it's just, it just doesn't make sense. Kevin, we're waiting for a poll from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Would you like to give us any insight as to whether we might see some kind of polling of the people of Georgia on issues like this? We will be seeing a poll <laughs> sometime soon. All right. That's very good news. We really, you know, we're very glad that you're going to be able to uh, uh, give us some insights about what people in Georgia are thinking about. Um, all right. Let's move on from impeachment for the time being, unless there's somebody who really has something essential they need to say. I, I want to turn to an, another story. You know what? I Guess what, Sam? Why don't we take a break? We've put the impeachment uh, uh, news behind us for the time being. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about a very important case argued in front of the Supreme Court today that involves a a Georgia man and that has enormous implications for uh, uh, people of various sexual orientations. We'll do that after these messages. Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. In 2016, a flash flood devastated a small Maryland town. The community rebuilt. There was a very short period of time that I could look back and think like, wow, we did that. Like we, we persevered and and, um, I don't feel that way anymore. (laughs) We look at the new normal that climate change is bringing to communities across the country this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB, gpbnews.org, or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Senator Jen Jordan, Kevin Riley, AJC editor, and Brian Robinson, a former uh, chief uh, communications director for uh, Governor Nathan Deal, and now out there in the business of communicating positive messages for the many clients that he represents. Uh, Jen, if I can, I'd like to start with you on this because you are the uh, attorney in the room. The U.S. Supreme Court today was going to hear a case which um, raises questions as to whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which did in fact make discrimination based on sex illegal, whether it also makes discrimination based on sexual orientation illegal. Um, And one of the plaintiffs in this case is um, a man, Gerald Bostock, who was a child welfare services coordinator down in Clayton County. He worked there for over 10 years. He got many good reviews. He was fired, he says, 
uh, because he announced that he was playing on a gay softball team, and he claims throughout this suit that he was fired because of his sexual orientation. There's another case tied to that that we don't need to go in. In fact, there are two cases tied to that. One also um, about whether sexual orientation was protected by the by Title VII. The other about is a transgender case, whether Title VII protects transgendered people. Right? I've got those details right. Talk to us about this. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly straightforward case in terms of of kind of the legal analysis in that you're looking specifically at the language of Title VII, um, where it says that you've been discriminated on because of sex. And so that's what we're focused on. It's interesting because the, the uh, with respect to, I guess they're the plaintiffs here, um, Mr. Bostock or Bostock, um, Basically, they're arguing for the court just to look at the plain language of the statute because of sex. Um, on the other side, you have the defendants, which is Clayton County, um, basically say, well, no, 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 we're not really talking about, you can't really look at that. You've got to look at kind of what the intent was in 1964 when Title VII was passed. And of course, back then, I mean, as Justice Ginsburg has indicated um, previously, I think even the American Psychiatric Association indicated that homosexuality um, was a mental health disorder. So we know in 64 that there was no intent to have that language cover um, sexual orientation. And so that's kind of what we're going back and forth about, kind of a, a textualist versus kind of intent and, and text. With enormous repercussions uh, uh, moving forward, depending on how the court rules. I just want to point out, Kevin, and then let you uh, have at this, that uh, Mayor Bottoms, Keisha Bottoms, and Ted Terry both uh, uh, filed Friends of the Court briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs in this case, in other words, supporting uh, their contention that Title VII protects these plaintiffs. On the other hand, uh, the administration, the Trump administration, has opposed this, and uh, and Congressman uh, Jody Heist, Doug Collins, and Rick Allens have all signed on in support of the the respondents saying, no, 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 Title VII doesn't protect sexual orientation. Right, and just to step back here, I mean, you know, the reason this is so significant, besides the the issues at hand, as we've just discussed, first time the court is going to look at something like this, dealing with this issue, since Justice Anthony Kennedy left, right? And he often found himself aligned with the liberals on the court when it came to these issues. It was especially important in the uh, gay marriage ruling. And so now we really are going to look at all of this contentiousness about placing injustices on the court. How will this really, really play out? And I think we want to see what Justice Roberts ends up doing. I mean, obviously they won't rule today on this, but he... Many people believe he is an institutionalist and gravely concerned about the reputation of the court. Will he kind of keep the court on this line, which has tended to start to go down the line of where our society is on these matters? Brian? Or will they go? Will he go elsewhere? Sorry, Brian? Well, he's certainly sort of taken over that role from Justice Kennedy now that he uh. is gone as that guy who could be the swing vote and, um, and keep things toward the middle of the road. I think that Justice Gorsuch is going to be the spiritual heir to Scalia and uh, and and see this the way Scalia would, which is we have to judge the law based on what the law says or, or what the Constitution says, not what we uh, wish it to be uh, based on our own personal beliefs. And I so I think with him, you can say very clearly, he's going to say sex does not mean orientation, who you're attracted to. It does not mean how you identify. It means whether you were born... Gender. It means gender, that you're a man or a woman. And, uh, of course, Justice uh, Kavanaugh is someone who clerked for uh, Justice Kennedy is sort of uh, and, and, and has been more independent than I think that liberals who just want to destroy him have really given him credit for. He could be a wild card in this. We don't really know. Is he going to be the spiritual heir of Kennedy? See, I, I see it a little bit differently in, in terms of Gorsuch and Scalia. I mean, I think Scalia in this instance actually would say because of sex actually did include sexual orientation. Um, 
And so that's kind of an interesting read on it. And, and that's why a lot of folks think that Gorsuch will be the swing as Kennedy, but specifically because he's more of a textualist. Yeah. But in terms of the amicus briefs that you were talking about, one really interesting one was one filed by 206 businesses, yes. which included some really um, high profile businesses from the state of Georgia, including Cox Enterprises, Coca-Cola, and then others, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, State Farm, Wells Fargo, Walt Disney, Starbucks, AT. Amazon, on and on and on. And so what you see is that the businesses say, look, we need Title VII because of sex, or we think because of sex should extend to sexual orientation, and we think that'll be good for business, which is is an interesting argument in terms of um, the Supreme Court. And I'm going to quote our story of earlier this week from uh, Bill Rankin, our legal affairs guy, and he says, Scalia, once a stalwart of the high court's conservative wing, authored a 1998 opinion which concluded same-sex sexual harassment can violate Title VII. So even Scalia, even that line of thinking has a, 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 is not predictable here. And I think that's what will be interesting about the case. I, I think one of the things that I, I was fascinated uh, by was a statement, and, and I've heard this several times, and many of you in the listening audience may have too. Um, when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, uh, it meant that, Jen, uh, you could marry your partner, uh, same-sex partner, uh, legally now. You could live together legally now. But if you were in a company where you put a picture of your husband, your wife, of the same sex on your desk at work, you could be fired when it was revealed that you were in a same-sex relationship. Right, which is, you know, which is problem. And I think that's where some of the businesses are coming from, too, which is to say we need to make this consistent across the board. Um, Okay, so let me take this, let me bring this closer to Georgia, Jen Jordan, because as a legislator, you know this issue well. One of the arguments that people who opposed for several years Uh, any kind of measure to have a religious liberty uh, law passed in Georgia, one of the concerns that has been expressed is that um, this could certainly work against gays, lesbians, transgendered people. Um, And one of the reasons it could is the state of Georgia refuses to pass, or the legislature has refused to pass civil rights laws in Georgia that would offer protections in these cases. And in some ways, this really is a corollary to what they're arguing in the court, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, at the at the end of the day, you, these protections need to be there. And Congress has not acted for whatever reason to extend it to expressly now include kind of this sex orientation in terms of, of actually putting that text in there. Um, but like the plaintiffs argues, like the employees argue, at the end of the day, it is because of their sex that they are being discriminated against. And because the states don't have that extra protection, I mean, we're really entering into if the Supreme Court says no, Title VII does not cover it. Um, in the state of Georgia, we're really entering into in some dangerous territory, I think, because we don't have extra protection right. here on the ground for right. people. Brian, it was interesting. I think there were some people out there who were a little surprised that the Trump administration, when this case was first working its way up through the courts, and by the way, we should point out here in Georgia, the 11th Circuit Court uh, said that Bostock did not have, this this case should not go forward. They said this isn't isn't a legitimate challenge. The only reason it got to the U.S. Supreme Court is that one of the other uh, plaintiffs in this case in Chicago, I think. New York. It was Second Circuit. New York. Second Circuit said, no, no, we do think this needs to go forward. If it had been up to the Georgia uh, appeals court, this thing wouldn't have gone forward to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, But now it rides along with the second district uh, uh, case. Um, But I think people were a little surprised that the Trump administration uh, was so quick to decide they would oppose this. And I suppose you could argue a couple different things there. On one hand, you could say, well, they believe in free enterprise. They want businesses to make their own decisions, whatever that means. Um, but it but it also strikes me as a political, you know, the, the president is looking for allies wherever he can get them. And this really alienates the gay and lesbian community, doesn't it? I don't, I'm not aware that there's a massive outpouring of support amongst the LGBT community for him before, just, just to address Well, there the, may not be, just but, to address the, but the I understand issue. that point. Nevertheless, why do you want to pick new enemies? Well, who 
because his is a president who plays to his base, and a lot okay. of his base is, Thank you. is evangelical Christian, yeah. uh, who, uh, regardless of where you stand on the RIFRA debate here on the state level, uh, I think there is a fear amongst that the evangelical community that the way that they see the world, their values are being plowed over by society. We, I don't, I don't want to get in that fight, but that is why they take the stands they do. All right. Um, we're going to watch how this plays out, of course, being the United States Supreme Court. We're not going to see a decision on this for months to come. Yeah, probably. I think probably spring yeah. or summer of 2020. 2020. Right before the election. Exactly. Like so many cases, and we're going to have a, a, a much more in-depth conversation at some point in the in the show in the weeks ahead about this. There are so many cases the court has taken up this session, which, Jen, as you say, are all going to land next spring. Yep. Many of them really on hot-button issues, including abortion mm. and other issues. It's going to be really interesting how the court ends up playing a role in the 2020 election. Yeah, right before. Yeah. I mean, um, they've for for months and years they've refused to take up some of these hot button cases, and now it's almost like all at one time. And they re- and they're all going to be out by June of 2020. And you know, in an atmosphere where Congress does not pass anything of substance, it is basically just a place where you go give speeches and nothing ever happens. We have committee hearings, and. You've got two things happening in Washington. You have Trump's Twitter feed and what he does by executive action. And then you have substantive policy issues being addressed by the Supreme Court. And we know that voters are paying attention because many of these are those cultural hot button issues that really hit people emotionally on both sides of our political divide. And we saw people voting on that issue in 2016. We saw many people who perhaps had their qualms with Donald Trump saying, well, I want him picking the Supreme Court justices when these seats come open. And that was a major driver. I heard it from a lot of particularly Christian voters uh, who maybe had some some differences with his lifestyle, but they knew that he was going to appoint somebody that they liked. And to his credit, he has. Kip, but they were, but Brian, they were totally uh, conservative Christians were completely focused on abortion. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I get that there are other things that have come up, but that's but a single issue. issue. Today, Kevin, and I he think... made that promise in his campaign. I will appoint judges who yes. will basically overturn Roe v. Wade. I, I, I'm not convinced that's going to happen. I just think when those when those justices get into those cases, it is a much harder decision than it is to spout about on a campaign trail. Kevin, we no should, we should, I agree. I'm sorry. We should point out that uh, your uh, Washington correspondent, Tamar Hallerman, I had exchanged uh, notes with her this morning. She was going over to the court to uh, watch this unfold, the arguments unfold. And so people can look for her reporting on this uh, at some point after the arguments are over. Well, in fact, she just filed. Oh, she did. What did she say? The U.S. Supreme Court justices appeared divided Tuesday on a Georgia man's argument that a decades-old civil rights law protects millions of gay, lesbian, and transgender Americans. So um, I, my prediction will be that it's going to be hard to read the court, and we'll be on pins and needles, as will these plaintiffs when the decision finally comes down. What a shock, Jen. Divided. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's incredibly problematic because this case, like— a lot of the abortion cases and stuff. I mean, if we say at the federal level there aren't protections, then basically you're going to have 50-plus fiefdoms where maybe people can get, um, maybe women can get an abortion in this state, or maybe if you're um, married um, to someone of the same sex in this state, you're safe, but in this one you're not. I mean, it's just... I mean, it's just kind of a parade of horribles. All right. Well, we're going to watch how it unfolds. And it co- yeah, Kevin. Kavanaugh spoke little at Tuesday's oral argument. Gorsuch asked questions that suggested he could ultimately weigh in on either side. That's uh, that's oh, wow. uh, Tamar Hallerman's post, which you can now see if you go to AJC.com. It'll be up on the political. Is it up on the political insider blog? It's on the homepage. Home home You'll find it on the homepage. On the homepage. All right. Let's uh, turn to a local issue for a few minutes, uh, Jen Jordan, because we have you in the studio today. You've been uh, one of the people who's really been most out front in dealing with the issues up at Sterigenics, the uh, medical sterilization plant in Smyrna, which um, many people like yourself have been very concerned is emitting a toxic uh, substance that they use in their sterilization. We've talked about it a bunch on the show, but there are a couple of really interesting developments that I'd love to get your take on. First of all, 
Um, the state was kind of slow in dealing with all of this in the first place, but they recently, after examining a leak at the plant, came back and gave Sterigenics a pass, saying, no, it wasn't significant enough to cause any alarm. We're not going to take action against them. At the same time, the Cobb County has decided to get tougher on sterogenics. Talk about th- those two th- issues for us. So th- the first one c- actually came about because of AJC reporter Maris Lutz's um, inquiry to EPD about various releases of this ethylene oxide into the air that had not been reported previously. So at that point in time, EPD said they were going to open up an investigation. They did. um, And then they released their findings saying, you know, because the releases were under 10 pounds, they had no responsibility or no legal responsibility to tell the state, so nothing to see here. The problem is, with respect to that, is that they're basing that all on Mm self-reporting. So self-reporting that just in their records or what Sterigenics says um, was released five years, four years, three years ago. And so we've got the same issue where you know, they're just telling us what's reported, um, and we really don't know because there hasn't been any independent verification. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Then with respect to Cobb County, what's fascinating is that they have basically said sterogenics cannot continue operating until they can prove or show that they are in compliance um, with the regulations um that basically deal with high-hazard facilities. Before, Sterigenics had said that it was a storage facility, had represented that in paperwork to the county. Um, and because of that, there, you know, the, the regulations or what you have to deal with if you're just a storage facility is much less than if you're a high-hazard facility. And so what Cobb County has said is, whoa, 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 hold on. You can't continue down this road because we don't even know if you're in compliance with the various regulations and laws that that govern high hazard facilities. And so we're going to have to bring in like a tech, uh, basically a, a tech expert to tell us whether or not you can even continue operating. So are they shut down right now they while are shut this down. is all going on? Yep, they are. Okay. Um, and what do you imagine? Well, you don't know, but you're not going to give up this fight. I mean, you don't. Are, are, do you want Sterigenics to be able to operate again if they can assure? safe operating procedures, or do you think they just shouldn't be there anymore? Look, I don't think that sterilization facilities should be operating um, in areas where you have dense populations, residential areas, schools, children outside. I understand the need for for sterilization services, um, but there are other places that that this type of facility can go to so that we know that they won't be hurting anybody that lives around the plant. Jen, let me ask you this, though. Um, I mean... Could this turn into just a massive not in my backyard issue? I mean, if if they shouldn't be there, then where? And won't there be objections to almost anywhere? Look, I think that where you can put a plant like that, as long as it's not near people in terms of, of dense population, in terms of residential, um, I think that it can operate. The problem is where it is, is that there are too many people that live close by. And um, and even apart from that, the fact that they've been operating for so long and without any real controls in place, um, that's problematic. But, and, but when you say no controls in place, don't you mean, I mean, they have, they're not accused of not complying with state requirements, right? I mean, I know that there have been some, some cases where the accusation's been made or proffered, but in fact, the, wouldn't it come down to what the state requires? So really, it's about the state and the federal requirements because they basically mirror each other. The problem is, is that those requirements are based on a finding that ethylene oxide is not a carcinogen. And so under the law, they can lawfully release and emit thousands of pounds of ETO into the atmosphere, which we know has been found to cause cancer. So the problem is, is that we've had a federal government and then also the state EPD that has absolutely failed to act in light of what we know about this particular carcinogen. So, I mean, as I listen to you, and I understand completely what you what you mean, and it reflects our our reporting and what we've had in the paper, but I guess what I'm getting at is is a big part of this 
citizens expecting the state to be more active or aggressive in its regulation. And if I'm the company, I'm following the law, right? I mean, what else would you want me to do? Well, that's the issue. The issue is we do want the state of Georgia. You know, if the EPA isn't going to do their job, then the state of Georgia needs to do its job. And even apart from that, what we know is that sterogenics in terms of their self-reported numbers have not been true. That's been proven. And then even with respect to, I mean, that they're a high hazard facility and they've been representing that they're a storage facility. I mean, it's one thing after the other that we're starting to see about this business. And that's problematic. We should also point out that we also have uh, we have a plant in Covington operated by a different company that has also been. It's interesting, Brian, they haven't gotten the same. I mean, we've They've been discussed and certainly in articles about them in the AGC on our air here at GPB, they've been mentioned. But all the attention is on sterogenics because there have been much more activism around the sterogenics plant. That's true. And it's, I, I think a lot of people in that area of Cobb County did not know yeah. that there was this plant sitting there among them. It was a bit of a secret, whereas in Newton County in Covington, that is a very large employer in that in, uh, county and a a corporate citizen in that county that people appreciate. And there's a relationship there that I don't think existed with Styrogenics. And with that particular company, it was a very small employer, too. So it doesn't have the political heft that's going to get the attention of somebody like Jen Jordan, a very powerful state senator uh, from from the area. So um, the county is the right person, the right entity to take action here because they were licensed the wrong way to what, what Jen said is correct. They were, they should not have been a storage facility. The county had the authority to do it. Part of what hamstrung the state was if they had closed it down, Styrogenics would have sued the state and would have then, during that litigation, not really care what the state had to say. And they would have kind of lost some control over what was happening there. So in this particular instance, the county acting was the right way to go. Because the county acted on zoning regulation, right? And the state has uh, environmental regulation laws that don't hold up in this case. Is Is that right, Brian? I assume that's probably it. All right, look, I'm sorry to bring this part of the conversation to a halt, but we've got to get another break in, and there's a couple other stories I'd really love to get to. So let's uh, take our final uh, break of the show, and we'll be right back with more. I'm Pam Bauer. I'm Director of Brand Development for Callaway Resort and Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia's authentic outdoor getaway and escape. We underwrite with GPB because we know that the listeners are very motivated, enthusiastic, and educated. We know that we are going to be able to touch a wide array of people who are curious and and will want to learn more about Callaway, so it's a perfect fit. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air, the whistleblower who exposed Cambridge Analytica's role in the 2016 presidential election, the company harvested personal data from tens of millions of Facebook users and used it to target people susceptible to disinformation and conspiracy theories. Wiley had been the research director at the company. Now he's written a new book. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. As we pointed out on yesterday's show, when uh, we were talking about the uh, president's uh, uh, surprise announcement that he was going to withdraw U.S. Uh, troops from northern Syria and, and therefore expose the Kurds who have been fighting up in that region to possible uh, incursions by Turkey, which has a very uh, hostile relationship with the Kurds. What's been interesting about it is that when it comes to impeachment and when it comes to so many other things the president does, Republicans stand unified with him. They have not necessarily. There's been an outpouring of criticism by Republicans and Democrats alike about this issue. I do think it's interesting, to the best of my knowledge, unless it happened in the last hour or so, we've still heard nothing from any members, Republican or Democrat, of the Georgia delegation about this, Kevin Riley. But we did hear from somebody really significant in many ways. That's Pat Robertson, the evangelist. I am absolutely appalled that the United States is going to betray those democratic forces in northern Syria, that we possibly are going to allow the Turkish to come in against the Kurds. Erdogan is a thug. He has taken control of his country as a dictator. He is a strong leader, and to say he's an ally of America is nonsense. He is in for himself. And the 
president who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. Pat, Robert, Pat Robertson has been a staunch supporter, as have, of course, most of the evangelicals in this country, of President Trump. And here he couldn't possibly have been more uh, critical uh, uh, about the president. It's interesting that, that uh, you, the Ukraine may not be the undoing of the president, but that he does risk losing some support over this Syrian uh, decision. You know, it's almost like old times, right, where senators actually speak up and say what they really think. Uh, and, and and I think people, particularly Republican senators who are strong Trump supporters, Lindsey Graham, for yeah. example, have come out strong on this. And I think it's because they feel like it's a safe issue. Like This is not one of those hot-button cultural issues where there's a reflexive uh, defense of, of Donald Trump, where they're allowed politically to have daylight with the president. Now, I am almost gratified to see people going back to principled stands where Lindsey Graham is on this is where he's always been. Where Donald Trump is on this is where he's largely been. He's been very clear from the campaign into the White House that he thinks we are overextended around the world, that we spend too much American tax dollars defending turf that is not of strategic value to American citizens. So this is in line with what he's always told us he believes in. But at the end of the day, I have daylight with him on this, too. We've got to stand with the people who've stood with us. We've got to be friends to our allies here and prevent a humanitarian crisis. Jim, we have not heard anything from David Perdue on this so far. And, of course, he's usually one of the first people to speak up in support of, of virtually anything that he thinks uh, the president has. That, that any time the president has been under attack, uh, he, to, again, to the best of my knowledge, we've heard nothing from his office on this. He continues to believe the best place to be, it appears, is tied to the president's hip. Yeah, and I think that's a a really, really bad calculation here. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we have our allies um, that now that we've pulled out, and we basically we've pulled out, we are going to leave them to be slaughtered um, by Turkey. And all of this comes after a phone call that the president has with Erdogan. I mean, and According to reports, military leaders, the Pentagon, Lindsey Graham, the people that are in positions of power, and it's particularly on this issue have been involved, weren't told about this um, until it was released by the White House. I mean, it is incredibly troubling, and I think that Brian may be right, that it may not be the Ukraine issue. It actually may be this issue. Yeah, Kevin? You know, it does feel like another one of these things where uh, the last person who talked to the president got their way and he goes out there and says something and then it, it, it just sort of blows up. So I wouldn't be surprised if he reverses course because we know, as Brian pointed out, that getting out of these different conflicts was a big part of his message during the campaign and in the White House. I mean, Steve Bannon pushed that and, and it's a point of view and it's a point of view that's understandable. But in this case, the Kurds have always seemed to occupy a special place in, in particularly our military military consciousness. When you, you hear so many interviews and read so much stuff about any of the senior American commanders who have served in that part of the world have close personal connections to Kurd leadership and to the Kurd the Kurds uh, militarily. So I, I just have a feeling he, someone said, oh, it's about time to do this. And he was, you know, trying to get everyone's mind off uh, the Ukraine. Well, we're going to, uh, <laughs> I, I know that our, our newsroom is continuing to effort uh, responses from the various members of the Georgia congressional delegation in a of course, they will uh, uh, put those on the air here and on our on our digital platforms as they get them. But uh, 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 Brian, it is interesting that so far we've uh, been met by silence from most of our delegation, the Republicans particularly. Right. Well, it's one of those things that unless you have have a big profile in foreign affairs, that's not necessarily what you're going to be putting a press release out on. Uh, and, and look, there's not a lot unless you have really strong feelings. Politically, it's always tricky if you're a Republican to 
go out of your way <laughs> to bash the president or say the president's wrong. Yeah, I suppose that's right. And I suppose it, it to be fair, that would be true in a Democratic administration as well. This isn't really just about Republicans and Trump. That's true. I don't, I don't know how many Democrats came out when Obama said, this is a red line, and then... Those red lines were crossed, and he did nothing. All right, let me. That was pretty serious humanitarian problems too. I, I've got about two minutes, and let me address this to you, Brian. Again, as the Republican at the table, TA. Um, you know, we've been watching as states around the country, thirty-seven of them, I believe, uh, have now passed uh, rules that are winner-take-all rules when it comes to assigning delegates to the Republican National Convention. It used to be proportional. Uh, If a couple of candidates got 30, 40 percent, whatever, you would apportion the number of delegates they got. And, of course, in 2016, that allowed Ted Cruz's forces at the Republican National Convention to stage quite an uprising against Trump, who clearly had the nomination. Well, it now turns out 37 states have passed new rules, and Georgia did it quietly in May which will prevent anybody on the on the ballot uh, who's challenged President Trump from getting any de- delegates at the convention. So the voices of any protest will be silenced. What do you think of that? Well, I, to, they will get delegates if they win a plurality of the state. Well, okay. That's, yes, which, that's you know, right. The assumption, of course, that's is that Trump right. is going to win the plurality in any state, which is the right assumption for, for certain. But I'll tell you this, at least we're still going to have a vote here. Which, <laughs> That's right. right. Whereas uh, I mean, South Carolina and other states are canceling their Republican primaries. When, when that happened, I, I reached out to state Republican chairman David Schaefer and I asked him, are we are we going to consider this? This is outrageous. And he was like, state law. And I'm sure Jen knows the, the code book backward and forward. She'll correct me if I'm wrong. But he said state law says we've got to have a presidential preference primary. So there's, it's not even up in the air here. Look, I don't get this bill because... President Trump had 90% approval ratings with Republicans. Even in the midst of all of this impeachment inquiry, drama, and all of that, he still got that support. He doesn't need to rig the system. Yeah, well... Have a show of strength at the ballot box. It is state law, I believe. It's a statute. You must have a primary here, isn't it, Right, you you must have it, but but it looks like you can do everything (laughs) but not have it in order to make sure that a certain result happens. And really, it is rigging the system. Yeah, right. We are... I'm sorry to stop this conversation because I've really enjoyed listening to what all of you have to say about the issues we've taken on today, but... We are really just about out of time. I do want to take just a couple minutes here. Um, I wanted you to know that uh, one thing quickly. Um, uh, Our Virginia Prescott on Sunday is going to be at the Fox Theater at 530, where she's going to have a conversation with... um, Rachel Maddow, who couldn't be hotter among Democrats these days, her show on MS- MSNBC. Of course, hot among Republicans, she, too, for a different well, reason. Well, for a different reason. <laughs> and and um, there are tickets available to this. Um, if you go to the On Second Thought Facebook page, you can find them. And I just think that's going to be a fascinating conversation. And I, I uh, say maybe you want to go over there and see that. The other thing I want to say, Kevin Riley, with our, like, 30 seconds left, is you're taking my place tomorrow. You're going to host the show while I take a day off. Um, tell us very quickly what you're going to do as substitute host of Political Rewind. You know, we're closing in on the uh, anniversary of Hurricane Michael, so we're going to talk with the Agriculture Commissioner about the state of farmers in Georgia. That'll be great. I'm kind of jealous you're getting to do that the show big shoes to I'm fill, Bill. Here. Big shoes. I'm going to go off and fish in Montana in my retirement, and you'll take the show. That's it for us today. Uh, stay tuned for Kevin Riley tomorrow on Political Rewind at 2. See you again on Friday.